I'm back with a new one instead of a repeat, although that repeat Ave Maria is going gangbusters. I don't know why that one in particular is so popular. It's not like I haven't done other possessions or, you know, cranky poltergeist things, or but that one really struck a nerve with people. Although I, I do think that that's kind of a tragic, well, not kind of, it's very tragic story about the uh, young girl. And I guess you do too. I guess it really tugs at you guys or something. I don't know. Somebody tell me if you've listened to it recently or in the past. What was it about that one? I'm curious. But today I am back with a new episode and something I haven't done in a while. Ufos, ufos, ufos. <laughs> hey, that's right, UFOs. And this one is very close to home. <clears throat> Let's get to this. The Maury Island Incident tells the incredible, tragic, and forgotten story of Harold Dahl, who on June 21, 1947, alleged a UFO sighting over Puget Sound, Washington, sparking the Summer of Saucers, the modern era of UFO obsession, the first appearance of Men in Black, and a governmental battle of UFO sighting jurisdiction reaching directly to J. Edgar Hoover. Woo! Sounds exciting, doesn't it? Sounds dramatic. That's Scott Schaefer's IMDb summary of his short film of the same name. This came out May 22nd, 2014. The sighting is, as you heard in the summary, nowhere near that date, but that's when this film was made. A budget of $54,000 approximately, and it's 30 minutes long. I found that you can actually watch it on Vimeo. I think the cheapest was, it was $2.99. Hey, they got to make a buck. You want to watch it? I just told you how. But how interesting is that? Huh? Ooh, dun, dun, dun. By the way, here in Washington, and I've mentioned this in other episodes, we're like number one for UFO sightings. Not even kidding. Let me, uh, let me play you a little something here. Let me... Before there was Roswell, before there were flying saucers spotted over Mount Rainier, there was the Maury Island incident. It's gone virtually unnoticed, though, for 65 years, but now it is getting new life in the form of a movie and even a celebration in period. Well, Matt Markovich takes us back to that UFO mystery that started a flood of sightings. Mysteries of UFOs may never be explained, but what happened in Puget Sound in June of 1947 is getting new life. That's when Harold Dahl, salvaging logs, said he saw flying saucers. One was in trouble dropping molten hot debris, killing his dog, burning his son. He told no one. He was then visited by a man in black, followed by a mysterious plane crash, killing the two pilots, allegedly transporting debris dropped from the troubled UFO. It's all known as the Maury Island Incident. There just many unanswered questions, and that makes an intriguing mystery. And maybe a solvable mystery, we don't know. In UFO lore, it's significant. It was reported three days before pilot Ken Arnold's famous sighting of flying saucers over Mount Rainier, the first time the term was ever used. Followed two weeks later by the reported alien crash at Roswell, and then the floodgates of UFO sightings opened wide. It's not promoted like Roswell. But I always say it's the Roswell of the Northwest. Seattle's Northwest Museum of Legend and Lore has a collection dedicated to the incident, including a piece of the B-25 that crashed near Kelso on August 1st, the first day the Air Force came into being. It became the first fatal Air Force crash ever, killing the two pilots. 
on a classified mission to find evidence and speak with Dahl. People have written it off as a hoax. And, you know, we don't know for sure if it's a hoax, but the reality of it is that two people were killed. That is definitely not a hoax. I knew it. This is an alien, and you guys are from some government agency trying to keep it under wraps. Uh, <laughs> it's also significant because it's the very first reported sighting of a so-called man in black made famous by the movie series of agents mysteriously appearing when aliens show up. Doll met with the man in black at a cafe in Tacoma. And this is the first incident in modern history of men in black doing this sort of thing. But it wasn't funny in 1947. The movie is the comic version, but the people that met them were scared out of their minds. So it wasn't very funny to them. But now the Maury Island incident is getting its own movie. Everything was south of Point Robinson. The script is based on declassified FBI documents. It's got the first man in black. It's got great conspiracy investigations, tragic deaths, and a guy whose life changes for the worse. So that's going to work for the top. In typical UFO buff fashion, the film's executive producer is building a flying saucer to crash into a 1947 Buick Roadmaster, the original man in black car. Building a flying saucer on top of a car is okay in your mind, but quite frankly, I'm overwhelmed. It should crash in Old Burien on the evening of April 1st as a part of a promotional stunt. This is a Maury Island incident, but Burien can steal it, <laughs> can take it and capitalize on it. No one else has. This flying saucer is clearly fake, but what did Harold Dahl see 65 years ago this June? Was that real? Do you believe this is true? Obviously, the crash is true, um, and I think he saw something. We just don't know what he saw, and that's the that's the real mystery. Matt Markovich, Como 4 News. And there you have it. There it is. I hope you could hear that all right. I hope you could hear that. If you want to watch that video, which was from 2013, just Google the Maury, M-A-U-R-Y, Island Incident. Okay. So I'm going to sum that up for you again. Because you probably heard a lot of things there. Crash, hoax, what, heh, what, what, plane, who, what, oh my god, men in black. June 2nd, 1947, at Maury Island, which is now a peninsula of Bashan Island that I have been to. And I can drive down to the water and look at it whenever I feel like it. I'm that close. It was daytime. And what basically happened is, Harold Dahl was out scavenging for drift, driftwood logs. He was with his son Charles, some unnamed helper, according to what I read, and his dog. And they were all on Harold's boat. When he claimed to have seen six, although the initial FBI report lists four or five, donut-shaped objects flying in formation somewhere around overhead or close to the boat. He said he could see blue dots of sky through the holes in the center so that's that's why it's a donut it's a freaking donut he thought there were even little portals portholes really not portals but portholes pardon that word lining the inside of the rings so i'm imagining the the video that i played that if you go look at it they actually have a pretty good rendering of it i'll find some photos and put them on my instagram pinky underscore podcast or you can see him on Twitter, Pod Pinky. Okay, so they're 
talking about like on the inside of the donut, right? And it's like little windows or holes or doors or something. So he's watching and one of these friggin' flying donuts uh, appeared to be having some issues, maybe a malfunction. So another one flies up close to it and then backs off. And after that, the malfunctioning donut ejects a bunch of shit through these portals that he thought he could see on the inside. You with me? I keep calling it a donut because it's easy to picture. And okay, it's funny, all right? Maybe you don't think so, I do. Maybe I just need more breakfast. So the inside of the donut, through the portholes, starts ejecting a bunch of just junk, whatever, you can't tell from you know that far away. And Dahl says that it's slag-like material starts hitting his boat. So the windshield, wheelhouse, and a light fixture are all damaged. And the really, really sad thing, and you you heard it maybe in the clip, is that it killed his dog. Ooh, God, fucking sucks. I hated that, that that was on there. His son was injured. Uh, I noted in the video, they said he was burned. So hot metal, I assume. But he he came out mostly okay, so don't worry about him. Now, Harold says, said, pardon me, he's no longer with us, said that he took pictures, like a lot of pictures of the craft and everything, and that he collected some of this debris. And along with that, he found samples of what he apparently described of some sort of light, lightweight, you know, white sheets that were made of metal and they moved like newspaper, like they had, they fluttered from that inside of the donut, right? That inner ring. So they must have been super thin, little sheets of metal to be flexible like that. Very interesting. Now it didn't take long though for shit to really start hitting the fan, okay? So this happens, you think that's already hit the fan. It's like the next day, the next morning, Dahl claims that a man came to his house and asked him to come and have breakfast at a nearby diner. And that's the diner they mentioned when they said they went to Tacoma. Harold said yes. And because he thought the guy was maybe military intelligence or something like that, or just in general from the government, because he was dressed in black and he was driving a brand new 1947 Buick, the original black men in black car okay so this stranger while they're sitting there eating breakfast relates details of what doll had seen to him but doll hadn't publicly mentioned it to anyone now it's possible that someone else saw it and told mr creepy man in black but there are no other reports of other witnesses that I saw. I admit I didn't do like a week-long dive into this, okay? But it's a little suspicious, little sus. You know, how do you know this, right? And it, uh, I, I think it was a little personal to Dahl. He's telling him like, oh, so this happened and this happened. And Dahl's like, I didn't tell anybody. And then 
the man in black allegedly makes a very vague threat. It was non-specific, you know, it didn't say exactly what would happen, but Dahl construed this as a threat to his family for some reason, whatever it was they said, or he said to him, he was worried about his family. And the threat was because I think I just skipped that part. I'm getting ahead in my own brain to not talk about it. Don't tell anybody what you saw. You could probably figure that out if you know the men in black. Okay. But I, and something I want to note that you heard from that video, that audio is that at one point, Harold Dahl did recant this sighting and he said it was a hoax, but then later he recanted that. And the reason he said, the reason he gave for saying that it was a hoax many years before is to protect his family. So that's why I'm bringing it up now. Vague threat. He decides to say it's a hoax to apparently protect his family. Before all of that, there is one person at least that he did tell, even though the man in black allegedly, apparently, in some way threatened him. And that was uh, his employee, Fred Chrisman, who worked at Dahl's Sawmill. And he told him about it, I think, because um, Fred co-owned the boat that he was using, for one thing. They shared it, apparently. And they were partners in this driftwood operation. They used the driftwood as raw lumber. And something to know about Fred is that Fred had long claimed to have experience with unusual phenomena. And he was even later allegedly linked to JFK's assassin assassination. Dun, dun, dun. Yes, we're going to have a peek at that later because as soon as I saw that, I'm, I said, well, I need to know what that's all about. But moving on. So Fred sailed to that island the following day. And he supposedly sighted an aircraft, a UFO, but it, but it went behind some clouds and that was it. He also is said to have gathered up some slag himself from a small beach area there. Now slag, by the way, is just like stony waste material that separates from metals when they're being during smelting or when they're being refined. I think basically think of them as like metal rocks. Now imagine a bunch of that, you know, clank, clank, whack. And now you know why the poor dog, you know, feel really bad. So Fred grabbed some of this, right? He collected this. He sent some of it to Chicago requesting somebody test it. Now, according to an FBI report, it either was sent to Ray Palmer, who was a sci-fi writer and editor of Amazing Stories, or it was sent to just some friend at the University of Chicago who couldn't identify it, and so they sent it to Ray Palmer. And I, I don't know why we sent this to Ray Palmer other than maybe since he was a sci-fi writer and apparently way into UFO stories and stuff, they thought he would be an expert. Well, let's find out about that. What is the deal? 
about Ray Palmer. He, uh, I looked up, he was born 1910 and died in 1977. And from obscurantist.com, I'll just very quickly give you a, their little bio of him. Editor of Amazing Stories from 1938 through 1949. A prolific science fiction editor and author. And this is mentioned in every bio. It's very interesting, very interesting kind of tragic. I don't know, but um, he was hit by a truck at the age of seven and it broke his back. When he was nine, there was a failed spinal graft and this left him a hunchback. He never got any taller than four feet tall. There's a, there's pictures of him. I'll share those two on, on the socials. So he immersed himself in science fiction. So I think that's why they always mention it. So he just, he decided that happened to him and he was short and he was just going to focus on writing and science fiction. So he pursued that. He started out in fandom to fanzine publications uh, and then to editor at Ziff Davis. And he published, I guess, a lot of magazines over the decades, which I'll tell you more about later. He turns up, they mentioned here, in this key UFO connected, con he turns up, pardon me, blah, see, I told you, I may not even cut this out, screw it. He turns up in many key UFO connected conspiracy events of the mid 20th century. I was basically trying to think ahead here and brings us to the more Maury Island incident. He also, uh, with someone named Richard Shaver, was an author, editor, and creator of the Shaver Mysteries. Mystery. Another side note is that in 1961, a real life name of the comic book character, The Atom, was changed from Al Pratt to Ray Palmer in Ray Palmer's honor. The Atom was a physicist who used material from a white dwarf, dwarf star to shrink himself down to subatomic size. I, that's nice of them to honor him, and that's that's cool. That's cool. But shall we go back to our UFO story for for the time being? So while this slag rock formation is getting passed all around Chicago, apparently, a very famous UFO sighting happened at Mount Rainier which is also in Washington state. And I can see this massive mountain. Actually, it's a volcano. Whenever it's nice outside, we always say the mountain is out. It's glorious to behold. It's beautiful. You heard that in uh, the audio that I played. They mentioned it. So what was it again? June 24th, 1947. Kenneth, a private pilot, saw a string of nine shiny, UFOs flying past Mount Rainier, and he estimated the speed was a minimum of 1,200 miles per hour. This, my friends, made national news. It was the second of many more sightings over the next two or three weeks. I say second because even though the articles I looked up call it the first, obviously Harold Dahl needs to be counted in this. So I'm saying the second, and it was considered the summer of saucers. And it's Kenneth Arnold's description is the reason why the press came up with the term flying saucers. And some say flying discs, 
but obviously flying saucers is what stuck. Now, I'm just going to give you the Wikipedia rundown of this one, okay? Kenneth was flying from Chehalis, Washington, which is about an hour and a half south of me, to Yakima, which is farther east. He was in a Call Air A2 on a business trip. He made a detour after learning about some $5,000 reward, which I guess is equivalent to about 58000 today, not too shabby, uh, for the discovery of a U.S. Marine Corps, Corps C-46 transport airplane that had crashed near Mount Rainier. The skies were clear, and there was a mild wind. So a few minutes before 3 p.m., at about 9,200 feet, in an altitude, 9,200 feet in altitude, blah, and near Mineral, Washington, which is close to Rainier, y'all, he gave up his search and started heading east towards Yakima. He saw a bright flashing light, similar to sunlight bouncing off a mirror. That made him think that he might be way too close to some other aircraft, like dangerously so. So he scanned the skies, but all he could see was a DC-4 to his left and behind, approximately 15 miles away from him. Approximately 30 seconds after seeing that first reflected light, that's, you know, how it seemed, he then saw a series of bright flashes off to his left or north of Mount Rainier to give you a little perspective. That was then 20 to 25 miles away or 32 to 40 kilometers if you like that measurement. He thought they were reflections from his airplane's windows or off his windows. But he, he did some sort of test like ro rocking his plane from side to side, took off his glasses, even rolled down his side window. Yes, you can do that in a small craft. He ruled this out. The reflections were coming from flying objects. They flew in a long chain and Ken thought for a minute they might be a flock of geese. But he then ruled this out for several reasons, including altitude, the glint, again, the, the reflected light, and the obvious speed that I told you a moment ago. Uh, you know, geese can sometimes kind of book it, but they don't go 1,200 miles per hour. So then he thinks, well... Maybe it's some type of jet, some new jet, you know, I've never seen. So now he's looking for a, you know, a tail and there wasn't any. These objects swiftly approach Mount Rainier. They passed in front, usually appearing uh, dark in profile against the bright white snowfield of Rainier. If you've never seen even a picture of it, look it up. It's always got snow on it, okay? And it's gorgeous. Anyway. But these, they were dark in profile, but they would still occasionally give off bright light flashes and they flipped around erratically. He said sometimes he could see them on edge and they were thin and flat, which is so thin and flat that they were practically invisible. Now, according to Jerome Clark, I don't know who that is, but uh, quick, 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 let's hopefully I don't lose this. Former, no, an American writer specializing in UFOs and other paranormal subjects. Okay, that's kind of what I what I figured. So according to that author, Arnold described them as a series of objects with convex shapes, although he later 
revealed one of them was different because it was crescent-shaped. So, several years later, Arnold said that he would compare their move it, movement to saucers skipping on water, but without actually comparing their shapes to saucers. But initial quotes do have him actually comparing the shape to a saucer. So, it's like, later he didn't say it, from what I'm understanding, but initially he did, because that's why, yes, the press latched on to that. So I don't know what this is, but using a Zeus cowling fastener, DZUS, you know, I'm not a pilot, as a gauge to compare the nine objects to the distant DC-4, Arnold estimated that their angular size was slightly small, smaller than the DC-4 and about the width between the outer engines, which is maybe 60 feet. He also claimed that he realized the objects would have to be very large to see any details at that distance. And later, after he compared notes with the United Airlines crew that had a similar sighting 10 days later, he placed the absolute size as larger than a DC-4 airliner or greater than 100 feet in length. Now, the, the uh, Army Air Force analysts would later estimate 140 to 280 feet based on analysis of human visual acuity and other sighting details. I mean, this is just, this was a big fucking deal, y'all. And as you, if you remember hearing in the audio, Roswell was not long after this. Now, Arnold's not done, though. He says that these objects were grouped together in, in a diagonally stepped down echelon formation stretched out over a distance that he later calculated to be five miles. And though they moved on more or less a level horizontal plane, he said also that they weaved from side to side, quote, like the tail of a Chinese kite, and they darted through valleys and around the smaller mountain peaks. They occasionally flipped or banked their edges in unison as they turned or maneuvered, and this made a blindingly bright or mirror-like flash. That, that was the flashes. The entire encounter gave him a bit of an eerie feeling, but he suspected then that maybe he'd seen test flights of a new U.S. military aircraft. He was himself, I guess, uh, originally a, a fighter pilot. So this might not be weird to him, right? Like, if you and I saw this, we'd be like, what the fuck? I don't know if y'all are on TikTok. I am, by the way, S underscore Roy. But all I can think of now is that sound, you know, that some people use. What? Say what? <laughs> anyway, it's perfect for this. So continuing with the sighting, okay? After the objects passed Mount Rainier, he turned southward and on sort of a parallel parallel course, like flying the same way. So that's when he opened the side window and looked at these objects unobstructed by any glass to, you know, with no reflections off his own glass, right? According to him, they did not disappear and they kept moving rapidly south, always ahead of his position. So that's when I guess he was, uh, began timing, like timing them and their rate of passage. He said they moved from Mount Rainier to Mount Adams where they faded from view, a distance of about 50, mi 50 miles in one minute and 42 seconds, according to the clock on his instrument panel. So later when he did the calculation, 
he came up with that comes up to 1,700 miles per hour. That was three times faster than any manned aircraft in 1947. So not knowing exactly the distance when they faded, he then rounded that down, right, to 1,200 miles because, you know, he was being conservative. He wasn't 100% sure about his uh, stats. And, and that's still faster than any known aircraft at the time. Apparently at that time, none had broken the sound barrier. So pretty picky, all right? So then he shared his story. He gets to Yakima. He, t he tells a bunch of pilot friends what he saw. They suggest that maybe he'd seen guided missiles or a new airplane being secretly developed. Same sort of idea. He refuels. He goes on uh, to an air show in Pendleton, Oregon. He's first interviewed the next day by some reporters, June 25th, because he went into the office of the East Oregonian in Pendleton. Now, any skepticism that the reporters had at the time kind of evaporated, I guess, as they spoke to him at length. Mike Dash, historian, quote, Arnold had the makings of a reliable witness. He was a respected businessman and experienced pilot and seemed to be neither exaggerating what he had seen nor adding sensational details to his report. He also gave the impression of being a careful observer. These details impressed the newspapermen who interviewed him and lent credibility to his report. Now, apparently Arnold, when he was talking to somebody from the Associated Press, says, quote, the whole thing has gotten out of hand. I want to talk to the FBI or someone. Half the people look at me as a combination of Einstein, Flash Gordon, and Screwball. I wonder what my wife back in Idaho thinks. <laughs> this guy, right? This guy. Now, the Portland, Oregon Journal reported on July 4th after they got a, a letter from L.G. Bernier of Richland, Washington, which is about 110 miles east of Mount Adams or and 140 miles southeast of Mount Rainier. The, the letter Bernier wrote states that he saw three of the strange objects over Richland flying almost edgewise, tipped towards Mount Rainier about a half an hour before Arnold saw them. Bernier, Bernier, B-E-R-N-I-E-R, -E let's stick with Bernier, thought the three were part of a larger formation. He also indicated they were traveling at high speed. Quote, I have seen a P-38 appear seemingly on the horizon and then gone to the opposite horizon in no, horizon in no time at all, but these disks certainly were traveling faster than a P-38. Uh, by the way, the maximum speed of a P-38 was maybe 440 miles an hour, so that would be way faster. Still quoting, no doubt Mr. Arnold saw them just a few minutes or seconds later according to their speed. So this guy, Bernier, had also talked to a newspaper, his local newspaper, uh, called the Richland Washington Villager, and he was the, one of the first witnesses to suggest extraterrestrial origins. He said, quote, I believe it may be a visitor from another planet. Another sighting, 60 miles west-northwest of Richland and Yakima, a woman named Ethel Wheelhouse also reported several flying disks moving at fantastic speeds around the same time as Kenneth Arnold's sighting. So then military intelligence begins to investigate this, right? Early July, they start looking into this. 
and they find another witness, a member of the Washington State Forest Service who had been on a fire watch at a tower in Diamond Gap. I know where that is too, about 20 miles south of Yakima. He reported seeing flashes at 3 p.m. on the 24th over Mount Rainier, exactly or around very close as Arnold's sighting. And they appeared to move in a straight line. Also at 3 p.m., Sidney B. Gallagher in Washington State, exact position unspecified, reported seeing nine shiny disks flash by to the north. You have to pardon me. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but it's almost like a lisp. I have a certain words just really do it to me. So deal with it. I don't know. You've dealt with me this far, right? But if you're new, I can't help it. Okay. Other Seattle newspapers also reported on the uh, flashing, rapidly moving objects on the same day, but not the same time as Arnold's sighting. Most of them were in an area over Seattle or west of Seattle in Bremerton. I know Bremerton. You should know that Bremerton also has some naval stuff there, ships and stuff all around there. Okay, we're surrounded by it around here. Um, hell, an officer and a gentleman was filmed out here, you guys. Not in Bremerton, but a bunch of it in Port Townsend. Anyway, we got a lot of military stuff around here. Now, Kenneth Arnold himself starts talking about extraterrestrial origins. So July 7, 1947, two stories came out where um, he uh, brought up this topic of them being extraterrestrials. In an Associated Press story, he said he had gotten a lot of fan mail. Uh, they were eager to help him solve the mystery, and nobody called him a screwball. He must have loved that. He said uh, many of the writers, like some doomsday preacher even, that he, he guess I guess he spoke to, actually put a religious interpretation on this sighting, but then others said that they were visitations from another planet. Arnold himself said that he purchased a movie camera that he was going to take with him every flight from now on, hoping to get evidence of what he had seen. In another story, he was interviewed by the Chicago Times. And here's an excerpt. Kenneth Lewis Arnold is not so certain that the strange contraptions are made on this planet. Arnold said he hoped the devices were really the work of the U.S. Army, but he told the Times in a phone conversation, quote, If our government knows anything about these devices, the people should be told at once. A lot of people out here are very much disturbed. Some think things may be from another planet, but they aren't harming anyone, and I think it would be the wrong thing to shoot one of them down, even if it can be done. Their high speed would completely wreck them. So, I I mean, this goes on. We can, he can probably have his own episode. We've, uh, we've talked about him long enough, I think. At least I think so. I want to go back to Raymond Palmer, okay? Let's go back to Raymond Palmer, the author, the sci-fi guy. He contacted Kenneth Arnold and asked him to investigate the Maury Island incident, I believe, uh, for a story. Because that's what he did, right? He did stories like that. And the magazine listed in the FBI report at the time is called Venture and Fantasy. A side note I want to tell you is that he kicked off the first issue of Fate magazine, January 1948. I bring it up because uh, I believe it's the same one that I get digitally now. It's, it exists. And you couldn't see the video 
you only heard the audio. But the historian, the sci-fi historian, or the the woman, I forgot her name, was holding up um, a copy of Fate magazine when she was talking about it. So I thought that was cool. So Kenneth then flies from Boise, Idaho to Tacoma, Washington to meet with Chrisman, our JFK guy, if you call, and Harold Dahl, our original, the OG UFO sighter. And they were at least three military intelligence officers, according to reports. And during these several days of meetings, an unknown person began to leak things to the press. And the FBI agent who wrote up the main bulk of the report suspected that it was actually Chrisman himself. So the reporters are picking this up. Uh, reporters from Tacoma Times, the United Press... Uh, this anonymous caller also contacted the Seattle Post Intelligencer and the Boise Statesman, and it just frickin' took, took off, right? It just frickin' took off. Now what? Now we've got, as I said, the Summer of Saucers. Summer of Saucers. Who are you supposed to believe, right? Who do we believe? Well... Shall we believe Fred Chrisman? Want to know a little bit more about that guy? Oh, and I think I got him confused with Arnold, uh, or maybe they both were. Fred Lee Chrisman, July 22, 1919 to December 10, 1975. He was a fighter pilot and later an educator uh, from Tacoma, Washington, who was very well known for his claims of paranormal events and ties to 20th century conspiracies. They said that about the author, too. In 1946, Fred here claimed to have had a battle with non-humans in caves during the Second World War. The following year, he tried to convince two early flying saucer witnesses that lava rocks were actually debris dropped from a flying saucer. In 1968, Chrisman was subpoenaed by a New Orleans Grand Journey in the prosecution of a local man for the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. This prosecution was actually dramatized in the 1991 Oliver Stone film, JFK. Woo! Six degrees of separation or whatever. I did not know that. Conspiracy authors, it says here, consider Chrisman a nexus point for a number of conspiracies and cover-ups from the late 1940s until his death. Ooh, here's a guy who also needs his own episode, doesn't it? We're just in the rabbit hole now. We're in the rabbit hole. So I guess he was, his parents were from Iowa. I grew up there. And uh, in 1933, they moved them to Oregon. His father ran a hotel. Chrisman graduated from Vail Union High School, blah, 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 blah. So he enlisted uh, in the Army is uh, where he was 1942, May 26, 1942. Served as a fighter pilot in the Pacific Theater, as it's called. Uh, reportedly flew 211 combat missions, wounded twice, shot down on two occasions. Wow, kind of a, kind of a badass. Uh, left the Air Force in 1946. So what does he have to do with Ray Palmer? Well, uh, Amazing Stories, 1946-47, was an outlet for fantasy, science fiction, and fringe claims. So in the May 1940 issue, for example, May 1946, 
uh, actually included the supposedly true fringe adventures, as they call it here, by Richard Sharp Shaver, the fiction of Dorothy and John de Courcy, written in the style of Shaver. But this isn't written very well. I'm actually reading this off Wikipedia now, sorry. So anyway, I still don't know what that has to do with uh, Ray. I guess they're just, okay, they're talking about the Shaver mystery. Oh yes, I mentioned that a moment ago, or, or several moments ago. Right, the Shaver mystery, didn't I? Who the fuck knows at this point? I've gone completely off script. Are you with me? Come with me into my crazy mind. <laughs> so, this was an allegedly true eyewitness account of UFOs in the Skies by Dirk Wiley and, and other genre-blurring texts, blah, blah, blah. So, promotion of the Shaver mystery. Amazing Story published a pseudonymous... Pseudon Is that how you say that? I know, pseudonym. Pseudonymous? <laughs> I guess that's like anonymous, except they're actually using a name, but it's a pseudonym. Yes, okay, whatever. And it was by Chrisman. It was actually written by Chrisman. Nah, ha, 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 now the plot stinkens. In which he claimed to have this um, battle with the mysterious and evil underground creatures to free himself from a cave in Burma during World War II. Oh, good, I wanted to know more about this. Thank God I went, went off script. Here we go. It's getting good. These are apparently his words from his uh, little letter. I flew my last combat mission on May 26, 1945, when I shot up over Basin and ditched my ship in Ramaree Roads off Chidubs Island. I was missing five days. I requested leave at Kashmir. I and Captain, redacted, left Srinagar and went to Rudok, then went through the Kesa Pass to the northern foothills of the Kabakarang. We found what we were looking for. We knew what we were searching for. For heaven's sake, drop the whole thing. You are playing with dynamite. My companion and I fought our way out of a cave with submachine guns. I have two nine-inch scars on my left arm that came from wounds given to me in the cave when I was 50 feet from a moving object of any kind and in perfect silence. The muscles were nearly ripped out. How? I don't know. My friend has a hole the size of a dime in his right bicep. It was seared inside. How, we don't know. But we both believe we know more about the Shaver mystery than any other pair. You can imagine my fright when I picked up my first copy of Amazing Stories and see you splashing words about the subject. Do not print our names. We are not cowards, but we are not crazy. Oh, dude, I, I don't know you. <laughs> you sound a little bit crazy. Ain't gonna lie. So this letter was quoted September 1946 issue of Harper's Magazine as an example of a crackpot letter. In May 1947, Amazing Stories published a second Chrisman letter, this time identifying him by name. And in that letter, Chrisman claimed to have traveled to Alaska with his friend Dick, who was killed there. Okay. This has just gotten really wild. Are, are we having fun yet? <laughs> See, that's why... A lot of times I'll, I'll, I'll do the research and I'll cramp my hand writing shit down and then I'll have web pages open. I'm like, hey, you know what? Let's check that. And then I just go down a rabbit hole. And so it's kind of half and half. I mean, why not? I am looking this up for you so you don't have to. Okay. You don't have to have five million tabs open like I do. So 
we uh, got the mention here of the uh, Maury Island incident, which is what I started this whole craptacular show with. <laughs> and um, they, yeah, they list it here. As, there are people who still consider it a hoax. Um, Harold Dahl himself, who was, if you've already forgotten, was the guy who originally re saw this and met the man in black, uh, actually thought that the 1960, 1960s uh, TV series, The Invaders, was based on Fred Christman's life. Like, this Fred Christman was just infamous. Um, but in January 1950 issue of Fate magazine, Christman insisted that the, in the incident wasn't a hoax. So we have another quote from him. Hang on. Why, if we were such blackguards and deliberately caused the deaths of two Air Force pilots and the loss of a $150,000 airplane, did not the government or some agency there attempt to seek justice through the courts of the state and federal government? He's quite, tries to be quite elegant, doesn't he? Eloquent. He actually, um spoke at a UFO convention in Seattle, um, 1967, about this incident. So that's, my goodness. You know, uh, in 1947, he actually was in a college community theater. In 1949, he was acting public relations officer of Oregon's first chapter of AMVETS. He uh, gave a talk on the Far East to a Kiwanis club, 1950. A letter by him was entered in the Congressional Record. Uh, Chrisman, oh God, the title, China Has Fallen to the Reds. Ew. Now, the more we read about him, I'm starting to not laugh about him. Okay. Uh, he, they got a quote here by him. It makes me mad to see it all go while people I thought were in the know grovel and back up before a gang of international brigands whose only influence from the Nazis is the cut of their uniforms. Only difference, pardon. I no longer think the people guiding our State Department know just what they are doing. You know, of course, he's was in the war and stuff, so. By uh, September 1950, he was a Willamette University student. <laughs> in October 1950, he wrote a letter to the editor complaining about the inability of local barbers of giving a military tram. <laughs> in 1951, while he was still studying at Willamette University, he uh, received a teaching assignment at Salem High. Now, Korean War, April 1951, it's reported that Chrisman had been ordered back to active duty, and that conflict ended 1953. 1953, he goes back to teaching in Elgin, Oregon, worked as a teacher uh, and administrator in high schools in Washington, Oregon. December 1953, he was the director of a high school drama club. Why does... It sort of makes sense. It sort of checks out, right? With Because maybe he has a really huge imagination. I don't know. But it's also makes you think, is that a good idea? I don't know. I, I don't know him. What do I know? I don't know. Any, I don't know anything but what I'm reading about this guy. <laughs> uh, 1955, he then took a job as a superintendent. 1964, he was teaching in the Turner School District. And... He had a book, uh, Industrial Recruiting, was accepted for a publication. April 1965, he was listed as, as a journalism teacher. 1966, February, suspended and later dismissed, oh, see, from his teaching position 
at Cascade High on a charge of insubordination and, quote, creating a secret society. Did I call it? Did I call it? So the board said that the organization is of such a nature that should not be condoned or authorized to exist in this district. Interesting. District officials said the society had been limited to five students, and officials declined to disclose the nature of the organization. Well, what was it? In 1966, an FBI informant claimed that Chrisman had transported $100,000 in cash to California, was doing business as a psychologist, and was suspected of operating a diploma mill. This guy, okay, raise your hand out there if you think he needs his own entire podcast episode and I need to do it, right? Yeah? I can't, uh, you over there? Okay, anyone? Anyone else? What the hell? October 31, 1968. Here's our, okay, this is the part I really wanted to get to, but then I'm seeing all this other stuff and I'm like, stuff and I'm like, this guy has been everywhere. Now we get to the JFK thing, okay? That's what I was really here for. That's what you were here for. 1968, New Orleans. Uh, the press release. Mr. Chrisman has been engaged in undercover activity for a part of the industrial warfare complex for years. His cover is that of a preacher and a person engaged in work to help gypsies. The fuck? Our information indicates that since the early 1960s, he has made many trips to the New Orleans and Dallas areas in connection with his undercover work for that part of the warfare industry engaged in the manufacture of what is termed, in military language, a hardware, meaning those weapons sold to the U.S. government which are uniquely large and expensive. Mr. Chrisman is a former employee of the Boeing Aircraft Company, that's in this state, y'all, in the sense that one defendant in the case is a former, these are, can you hear the air quotes, employee of Lockheed Aircraft Company in Los Angeles. In, in other words, he didn't work for Boeing. In the intelligence terminology, this ordinarily means that the connection still exists, but that the former employee has moved into an underground operation. More often than not, a bad record or evidence indicating that he has been fired is prepared for the parent company to increase the disassociation between the two. Oh, okay, like a case of, well, yeah, you worked here, but we're going to say you didn't work here. Okay. So he was deposed in the case against Clay Shaw. A photocopy document later circulated among Kennedy assassination buffs that claimed that Chrisman was one of the three tramps allegedly employed by a secret government agency. I didn't realize this guy was so infamous. So we're crossing... We're crossing genres here. We're crossing from the JFK conspiracies to the UFO conspiracies to to creepy creatures in caves conspiracies. I watched Hellier. That was good and creepy. If you didn't watch it, check it out. I think you can still find it on Amazon. Um, wow. 1979, the House Select Committee on Assassinations reported that forensic anthropologists had analyzed and compared the photographs of the three tramps with those of Chrisman, as well as with photographs of Watergate figures E. Howard Hunt, Frank Sturgis, and two other men. And according to the committee, only Chrisman resembled 
any of the tramps. But the same committee determined that he was not in Dealey Plaza on the day of the assassination. Ooh. So apparently Jim Garrison was a very uh, controversial district attorney, and he claimed that Chrisman was one of the three tramps arrested by Dallas police, and also that he was a uh, bishop of the Universal Life Church. And Garrison theorized, I suggest the only reasonable conclusion is that he, Chrisman, was, and probably is, if still around, an operative at a deep cover level and a long-range clandestine intelligent mission directly in terms of our national intelligence paranoia related to maintaining national security. Chrisman emerges as an operative at a supervisory level acquired by the apparatus to carry out the menial jobs that are needed to push current mission forward. A middleman in the final analysis between the mechanics who eliminate and the handyman who otherwise support a termination mission on one hand and the distant, far removed, deep submerged command level on the other. In other words, like, these guys, these guys are vicious. We don't like this guy. Holy shit. We're not done. August 1st, 1968, Chrisman hosted a radio talk show under the pseudonym John Gold on station K-A-Y-E. Anybody out there in Tacoma remember? Anybody? He authored the book, The Murder of a City, Tacoma which was published in 1970 through Transistor Publishing Company. Described by reviewer Michael Sullivan as a weird, politically slanted rant that manages to tie corruption in Tacoma to everything from communist infiltrators to the Kennedy assassination. This, this dude cray cray. That, I've decided. <laughs> At the time of his death, Chrisman was a graduate of Willamette University with degrees in political science, History, education, and psychology. I mean, I'll give him that. He kept going to school. Uh, and in 1970, he was actually a vice president of the Tacoma Library Board. <laughs> Jesus. What didn't he do? 1973, he resigned from that library board. And he ran for a seat on the Tacoma City Council. Unsuccessfully. Thank God. September 1974, hospitalized for kidney failure, April 12, 75. I guess he lived because he remarried, no, married Mary Frances Borden, May 75. It was reported that True Magazine had published a photo of him speculating he was one of the three hobos or tramps in the JFK lore. So that happened in 75. November 1975, issue of Crawdaddy Magazine repeated this claim and further claim without evidence that Olympia police suspected Chrisman of narcotics activity in connection with a group called Servants of Awareness. It was by December 1975 that he died, and I think this guy would have still gone on to have many more conspiracies around him had he lived. Wow, did we even follow any of that? Holy shit. Oh, I need a minute. Wow. I didn't know UFO was going to go down into a JFK thing. In a, in a, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Woo! Where the hell were we? Uh, uh, we need to finish the Maury incident. Oh, my God. Yeah. was uh, so, so where was I even the hell with that? We were talking about the leaks to the uh, post-intelligencer, the other, and they all thought it was Chrisman. You know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say, yeah, it was probably him. <laughs> so... Let's wrap up this this 
Maury Island incident and poor doll. Okay, and I'm just going to read this shit now because... So we have uh, the two United States Army Air Corps investigating officers who were apparently there, you know, um, at Arnold's request. Which one was that? Kenneth Arnold, who saw the people, who saw the saucers uh, around Mount Rainier. Oh my God, I actually remembered. So they were Captain William L. Dev Davidson and Lieutenant Frank M. Brown of Army A2 Intelligence. So they 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 left. Uh, from Hamilton Field, I guess that's where, in the area where they were having the meetings, and they arrived in Tacoma after interviewing Chrisman. I feel like I need one of those things on the wall with the red strings and going all to the diagrams. I did not though. I did not know this was going to get this nuts. So Dahl decided to leave because now, now we get to the part where he's uh says that there could be danger to himself if this story got out. So he's being interviewed by these guys, and now he tells them that he's afraid. And we assume this has got to be because of the, the man in black. God, okay, I think we made it back around in this circle. So those two intelligence officers said that they had to return to Hamilton Field in California very quickly because the next day was Air Force Day uh, when the Air Force officially became a new service branch distinct from the Navy, Marines, and Army. So those investigators are, are leaving or they're getting ready to leave. Chrisman produced samples of the, the slag, the rock formations from his automobile, gave it to them to take to California. The plane carrying these two investigators crashed near Kelso, Washington. I know where that is too. I drive through it every time I go down to the coast. It's two-ish, two-and-a-half-ish hours from here. Now that takes us all the way back to what you may have heard in the audio that I played. Um, because I, I didn't know what they were talking about for a minute about the other plane crash. So let me repeat that. This is kind of, I mean, it's it can, it can totally be a coincidence because shit happens, but you can't help. This is how you can't help having sometimes conspiracy theories because it's like, oh, wasn't that convenient? Because we had the man in black, right? So yeah, once again, these investigators have these uh, have this evidence that Chrisman gave to them, and they crashed. I mean, they they couldn't have been in the air for very long at all because um, driving to Kelso, you know, is a couple of hours. So flying from Tacoma there would be nothing. All the way up now to April two thousand seven, there are reports that the crash site was rediscovered because I think they had trouble with it at the time and that some of the material was recovered. And although the initial military investigation did recover exhibits and remove bodies, but they must have kind of kept the information to themselves. So the FBI report notes that investigators from McCord Field near Tacoma, I told you we've got a bunch of shit around here, had investigated the wreckage and they were convinced there was no sabotage. They said there was no sabotage. The FBI report, FBI report further goes on to say that um, two other people on board the airplane survived uh, by parachuting after it lost its left wing and its tail section due to a fire in the left engine. So one of the survivors was named as a member of the flight crew and the other was referred to as a hitchhiker, which I find 
really strange. Is is that not strange, especially your military? Is that? So the Seattle Post Intelligencer identified them as Sergeant Elmer L. Taft and Technical Sergeant Woodrow D. Matthews. But now initially the Air Force denied that they were carrying a secret cargo because of course they did. But then later years finally admitted that they were officially investigating this doll report. Are we still straight with all this? Oh, I need, I need, I need the graphs on the wall and the, and the red yarn. So Chrisman or JFK nut alerted Arnold, the guy who saw nine saucers at Mount Rainier about this crash. He, t he tells him like very early the next morning after it happened. Dahl and Chrisman go back to the hotel to talk about this with Arnold. So they're having a little powwow. Arnold also invited apparently another person who was, I guess, accidentally identified in a, a copy of the FBI report as Mr. Smith of Seattle. I mean, what do you mean falsely identified? I think that's a pseudonym. Uh, maybe not. Because in parentheses here, they say that um, it could probably be Captain E.H. Smith or E.J. Smith of United Airlines. <laughs> so I don't know. Uh, they invited him anyway to Tacoma to attend a UFO conference. And this informant related to the FBI field agent that a Mr. Lance, uh, also identified as Paul Lance of the Tacoma Times, contacted Arnold. And at the hotel and told him about these leaks uh, it, which included information that the army intelligence officers had been shot down so now we got the gossip going already that quick they'd been shot down in the b-25 airplane over Kelso by a 20 millimeter cannon and then a marine airplane whose wreck that had allegedly been found earlier at Mount Rainier had also been shot down with the same weapon have you got it Mount Rainier, nine flying saucers, another plane. So this anonymous caller claimed knowledge of ongoing investigations by military intelligence. He was not identified ever, but he claimed to be a switchboard operator. Mr. Smith informed the FBI that the switchboard operator at the Winthrop Hotel in Tacoma was not male, so it couldn't have been there. The anonymous caller also said he was not interested in proving, uh, providing a scoop to any certain media outlet, but he wanted the news to get back to New Jersey. Huh? Don't know. So then when Dahl was asked to produce the photographs that he said that he took of the UFOs over Maury Island, uh, the group left the hotel. They go to Dahl's automobile, which was parked outside. And this is when Dahl claimed that the photographs had disappeared. They had been in his glove compartment and they disappeared. Um, initially, though, he said they didn't turn out and were marred by white spots that appeared on them. So I, I think if I'm reading this right, he might have said both things. I, I, I don't think he was lying in this. I think he was saying like, well, they're not very good and they have white spots, but let's go get them. And they're not in the glove compartment. Um, he didn't change his story, I guess. And the group knew the photographs were of poor quality, apparently. So uh, later on, UFOologists 
revisited this issue of the photographs with Chrisman, Fred Chrisman. And um, this prompted claims by some people that copies survived, but ufologists were unable to get this evidence at all. Now, this little group, this ad hoc group in Tacoma, as they call it, in 1947, also decided to sail to Maury Island. The plan failed because the boat didn't start. Asked where the UFO had damaged the boats, Fred Chrisman pointed to the windshield, the klaxon, and a light. Smith told the FBI there were no signs of recent repair to these parts. So, alarmed by the deaths, you know, the crash, etc., Harold Dahl, our original poor guy with the poor dead dog, disappeared. And the FBI report does mention his son, who, that was allegedly injured by slag from the malfunctioning UFO, mentions that he had run away from home to Montana for some reason. And wait, here we go back to the anonymous caller, informed the press that one of the two witnesses would shortly be sent to Alaska. Chrisman, who was our JFK World War II veteran, was recalled to service, which makes all that reading I did about him and, and got the rabbit hole into some of his biography good thing that I did that now that's not what I wanted to say like it wasn't a waste of time because <laughs> I told he was called back to service uh, but sent to Alaska and a UFO they mentioned was spotted northwest of Bethel Alaska on August 4th by Captain Jack Peck and co-pilot Vince Daly from a Douglas DC-3 they operated for Al Jones Flying Service and was reported to the headquarters of the 4th Air Force in Hamilton, California and the Air Defense Commander at Mitchell Field in New York. So anyway, Arnold found himself unable to complete the story that if we go all the way back to our sci-fi guy, Ray Palmer, had wanted him to do or investigate. The uh, samples of the slag that had been given to Arnold and Palmer also allegedly went missing. Arnold was allegedly advised by Ted Morello of the United Press, you're involved in something that is beyond our power here to find out anything about. Get out of this town until whatever it is blows over. So Kenneth Arnold decides to fly home. He stops for fuel in Pendleton, Oregon, and shortly after he takes off again, remember he can fly, he's a pilot, his engine freezes mid-air. But he did manage to land the plane. He did manage to land. He did not crash. Paul Lance of Tacoma Times died within two weeks of undetermined causes. United Press stringer Ted Morello moved to New York and until his death due to a stroke in September 15, 2007 at the age of 88 was a well-respected newspaper correspondent to the United Nations. So he made it. There's a few deaths around this though for sure. So there are people, uh, of course, that believe um, the other famous, famous case of a disabled UFO, the Roswell incident, uh, took place about 12 days after Dolls, although various dates, you know, there, there, there are various different dates, I guess, uh, among Roswell investigators, and the chronology is less certain, actually, less clear uh, than it is for this Maury Island incident. And the story about the uh, crash of the B-25 and the two men who were investigating it um, allegedly had top secret cargo or even saucer ports 
was carried by the wire services and published by newspapers locally and nationally. Uh, so they're very similar. Now, now we have a man named uh, Ar Albert K. Bender seized upon this story, you know, by Harold Dahl, and he printed it in a newsletter. In 1953, Bender claimed that three men in black visited him. Dahl didn't say this, Bender did, and warned him to stop his UFO research that they warned him, and which he did for a decade, closing down his International Flying Saucer Bureau. Oh, Bender says they visited him, my bad. Bender says three men in black visited him after he published this and told him to basically shut the fuck up. So he did for a while. But then in 1963, Bender published a story, Flying Saucers and the Three Men. So there you go. Now we have Captain Edward J. Ruppelt, chief of Project Blue Book in the early 1950s. He wrote that he was convinced that this whole thing was a hoax. The initial FBI field report also concluded that it was a hoax. And in the report, that anonymous caller had mentioned an incident involving a United Airlines pilot and his co-pilot flying over Montana and coming under fire. So the United Airlines pilot E.H. Smith, which may be the identity of this main informant and a key figure in meetings at the Winthrop Hotel in Tacoma, was named as witnessing a UFO event over Boise several weeks before, July 4th, this same year. Uh, God, I'm... Ooh, give me the red yarn and the cha charts and the maps. Okay, uh, so prior to the crash of the B-25 near Kelso. So this is all in that same year. Now, according to an Associated Press dispatch, Dateline of San Francisco... August 2nd, two flyers died in a crash on DISC mission. That's what they uh, reported August 2nd. Is strange rock from UFO or just a piece of poppycock was another thing, another headline. And in the FBI report on the Maury incident, Mr. Smith reports he made contact with people he knew inside the military intelligence during meetings with Arnold Dahl, Chrisman, and others in Tacoma. Smith reported a meeting between Arnold, him, and unnamed military intelligence figure without Harold Dahl or Fred Christman being present. So now we got secret meetings behind secret meetings. Uh, in other accounts by Arnold, Major Sanders, I can't, is that Colonel? Did you bring some chicky? Is mentioned as present at the hotel with Christman. Arnold at one point, Kenneth Arnold, went to some unidentified, everything is unidentified, Tacoma slag mill to compare their slag to that slag. And uh, found that they were very much alike. So that story surfaced from Ray Palmer, back to our author, regarding a man called Fred Christman, who claimed to have actual physical evidence of a flying saucer July 31st, 1947. So that's when the Ray Palmer story came out. Oh, and I'd said 60-something. It was 1947. Palmer then passes this story on to Keith Arnold, who was investigating the UFO reports in the Northwest. Arnold interviewed Chrisman and his associate, Harold Dahl, who claimed they were harbor patrolmen, their first lie. So then we start talking about this whole thing over again um, and how they told that guy uh, they had seen the donut-shaped craft dump piles of slag and about the uh, man in black that had threatened Dahl 
who claimed the man said, I know a great deal more about this experience of yours than you will want to believe. So that's just, this is just crazy. This is crazy. Now, apparently two Air Force officers recognized the material, this, this uh, proof that they had, as ordinary aluminum. But they wouldn't say so in front of Kenneth Arnold because they didn't want him to be embarrassed. And those officers that I'm talking about are the ones who, while they were flying back, crashed and died. Now, Chrisman and Dahl, we get to the, uh, the uh, confession, later said to investigators that they made the whole fucking thing up. Just lied about the whole thing. Before he died, though, Fred Chrisman changed the story of the Maury incident to that of an American plane dropping radioactive waste instead of a UFO. But, as I told you somewhere around the top of this insanity, Harold Dahl, also later in his life, took back what he said about it being a hoax, that he just wanted to protect his family. I, I, woo, I think we got to stop because I don't even know where the hell we are anymore. I don't know where we are no more. Don't know where we are no more. <laughs> Ashley was going to read some more about Raymond Palmer. I have a page here too. Um, okay, a little bit because it's pertinent. FBI file, CIA UFO connection. Uh, Ray Palmer was actually investigated by the FBI beginning uh, early 1953 to mid-1954 after he was falsely, we should say, accused of spreading Soviet communist propaganda in several Mystic Magazine articles. Chicago FBI special agents interviewed Palmer after he ran a story called The Nugians Walk Our Streets, and this was by sci-fi author Frank M. Vest. The story claimed that FBI laboratories were researching, researching a mystery metal from Venus. The FBI did a record search and found that their laboratories had never received any such metal and that no research was being performed. When confronted with this falsehood, Palmer claimed that he did not catch the FBI reference and the mystery metal in his final edit, but quickly apologized for the mistake and even offered to run a retraction. During the course of the interview, Palmer did confess to special agents that he was, however, involved in forwarding letters to the editor, accounts of flying saucers, to the Central Intelligence Agency agency office in Chicago. He said that the magazine received 50 letters a week regarding flying saucer sightings and that he forwarded the most feasible accounts to the Chicago office of the CIA. The FBI released Ray Palmer's secret and confidential file 22 June 2018 under the Freedom of Information Act. So if you want to go way all elbow up ass deep in this, you can look that up. I am having a harder and harder time speaking. I think I need hydrating. I think I bit off more than I can chew. And I'm like, oh my God, it's Wednesday. It's almost Friday. I need an episode. I don't even know if I want to listen back to this. <laughs> How nuts is this story? I didn't know. Uh, I may have to do a separate one on these people or do this one. Oh, I'm going to release this. You're listening to it now. But maybe uh, maybe it will deserve an update if I repeat an episode and actual re-recording. <laughs> do we even have any idea what the fuck we just listened to? I don't know what the hell I just said. I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop right there. 
I don't know why I didn't think about the fact that back in the 50s, there would have been all of this other shit going on too, like Cold Wars and Red Scares and assassinations. And honestly, a lot of times when you look these things up, they do end up being connected, which I'm not saying it's related. I'm just saying it's interesting. Thank you for making it through the end. If you did, if you're still there, love you of this madness. And uh, check out PinkySquarePress.com. Come over to the Tiki Talks, S underscore Royt. I have everything from just messing around and having fun to my barbershop stuff. Also, I am uh, nearly finished with the first draft of, I think you would call it a fantasy slash thriller slash male male romance slash, I don't know, but it's definitely supernatural if you're into that. Keep up, you know, check check out, check for updates. Working on the omnibus, realizing it's going to be giant, <laughs> trying to figure out how to print it. What else have I got going on? I don't know. I'm brain dead now. I think we'll just stop right there. Thank you for listening. Oh, and actually, one last little thing. I have some other cases I could do that I'm fairly certain involve men in black as well. There was, where am I, the Broadhaven school incident, I think, involved that, 1977, and the Melbourne 350. That happened in 1966. Also pretty sure some men may have visited them. I had written these things down uh, along with the one that I just did for you. So sounds like maybe... You know, let me know if you're interested. I could do those. Uh, hit me up at PodPinky on Twitter. I could do those. Maybe an entire episode for Mr. Fred Chrisman, crazy man. Maybe even for that author. I don't know. Ideas, right? Um, yeah, I did this one kind of last minute, but maybe I could uh, do a little better research on some other ones. Okay, thanks for listening. Pa-pow.